Hello and welcome to Banter. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with Robert Doerr, AEI president, and we'll be your Banter hosts. Joining us today on Banter is Ed Pinto, who's a senior fellow and the director of the Housing Center with us at AEI, where he researches expanding the affordable housing supply and explaining what drives spikes in housing prices. Before joining AEI, he was the executive vice president and chief credit officer for Fannie Mae until the late 1980s. And as the director of the Housing Center here, he oversees the monthly publication of AEI's Housing Market Indicators Report, which tracks financial trends in the housing market. We're glad you're joining us, Ed. Thank you. Well, happy to be here. We're happy to have you too, Ed. And we got a lot to talk about because there's a lot going on in the housing market. And Ed knows everything about the Mm -hmm. housing market. And that's why we love him so much here at AEI. But... I have here, I'm feeling a little <laughs> bit like, uh, you know, that guy who used to do radio shows. I've got a letter to the podcast because we made or I made an error in our last podcast. And I'm, I need to I need to get this correction taken care of mm-hmm. because we can't let another minute go seriously. by. So unfortunately, this also concerns a personal matter because this letter to the podcast comes from our uh, biggest fan. Phoebe, you may not know this, but Sarah, my wife. Listens to us very know. faithfully I've to her about and, gives us, <laughs> and gives us feedback. I said something in our interview with Ben and Polito about yeah. how the birth of our four children went. And uh, I got it wrong. Wow. And I'm so glad surprise. this is about. <laughs> so, uh, so here it goes. This is from Sarah Dore to the podcast. Letter to the editor requesting a correction. When you said I had epidurals during the birth of our four children, you were incorrect. I never had an epidural during childbirth, but the OBGYN did use Pitocin in all four instances, a drug administered to speed up labor. Pitocin is widely considered to increase pain, not reduce (laughs) it. That's what she wanted to point out. The only pain reducer administered across all four episodes was one shot of Demerol, and that did send me to the moon. When you are talking of your great expertise in labor and delivery, you could offer tips on how you distracted yourself to the extent that you really didn't know what was going on. (laughs) Child number one, busy running for election for state assembly and was very unprepared. So you followed plan B and made lots of trips to the cafeteria for brownies and potato chips (laughs) for yourself. (laughs) Child number two, reading the Eisenhower biography and lots of talk with the doctor about the New York Giants football game that was on TV that day. Child number three, reading the Truman biography. (laughs) Child number four, reading the Frederick Olmsted biography. So sincerely, Sarah Dore, please correct the record. I did not have an epidural during any of my, my pregnancies. But I did have Pitocin, which causes more pain, not less. <laughs> so, Sarah, thank, I hope thank you for that. We like to get the record straight, Ed. And any errors or correct mistakes we make on this podcast, we will correct immediately, as we have <laughs> in the case of Sarah. I will only say one, one thing. I was reading things during the five hours of the birth of our children, but I was also very engaged and helpful. I just want the record showing. I, I quit. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to stop there. Yeah, we right. don't need another correction next yeah, we, week. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Ed, so let's just start with that, that one of the things that Phoebe mentioned there, that you and your team track the housing market probably more closely than anybody else. You produce a report that appears monthly in Barron's, and it's one of those things that, you know, financial gurus and housing market experts, you know, pour over every time it comes out. What is the state of the housing market in the United States right now? What's going on? Great question, Robert. Uh, state of the housing market right now is in flux. It's changing. So. We've been in a house price boom since uh, the beginning of 2012, so it's been over 10 years. 
It's the longest house price boom that we've ever had, but it looks like it's going to be coming to an end, not a crashing end like we had last time, but definitely an end. And how do we know that? Uh, we know that because house price appreciation, which we compute monthly for the whole country and for metropolitan areas around the country, was running at 17% year over year uh, in the month of April. We have a forward-looking uh, metric, which allows us to see what May, June, and July are going to be. And we already know that July, it slowed down to 12%. So 17% is the highest it's ever been. And 12% is a lot lower than uh, 17. We're projecting that by the end of this year, the year-over-year rate is going to be 6%, a further slowing, but not negative, um, but a further slowing. And just to be clear on those percentages, because maybe I didn't hear closely enough, is that the, the, the percent increase in price or the percent increase in number of transactions? It's a percent increase in price year-over-year for the same transaction. So it's called a constant quality price, same transaction, same houses uh, looked at year over year. And it was running 17%. Uh, July, we're expecting 12%. End of the year, December, we're expecting 6%. For the end of next year, we're expecting 4 to 6%. Now, if you take a inflation into account, uh, which was very low up until a year and a half ago or a year ago, 17% was almost all a real house price increase. Today, if it goes down to 6%, inflation is still 6 or 7%. We're really looking at flat to, ne to negative real house prices. Now, Ed, you are, I know you pretty well. I've watched you since the day I came to AI. You're a prudent banker who it might be that you think this slowing is actually a good thing. I think it's actually a good thing. And I think that we're more, much more protected for this slowing than we were last time. And one of the reasons that Steve Olner, uh, the co-founder of the Housing Center and colleague here at AEI, and I started the Housing Center, was we realized that back in the aught years, nobody was really tracking risk. They were tracking delinquencies, but delinquencies are not a leading indicator. We decided to track risk with a, a method that we dubbed the mortgage default rate. That mortgage default rate has now been in research with the Federal Housing Finance Agency in combination with uh, the Housing Center uh, has now become the standard for tracking risk. And what we do is we say, um, what happened in 06 and 07? That was the peak of the housing market. Uh, housing prices crested uh, in 06, 07, and then came down through 2011. And that was the bust. A bust. It was a crash. The crash. People were, people's uh, net worth was yeah. destroyed. And uh, it was awful. Went, and people, worst hit were sort of middle class Americans who've been sucked into buying houses at inflated prices. Well, and you're saying now that didn't happen this time. I don't think that's going to happen this time. We track how risky loans were, and we actually have an index called the stress mortgage default rate. What was the default rate on loans originated in 06 and 07 at the peak? And how many defaulted? It turns out a third of them, more than a third of them defaulted, like 36%. That's a crash. That's, That's a, a crash. Yeah. And that led to a 25% reduction in house prices across the country. Some places went down 50%, some places went down 10 but the average was 25% nationwide. This time, when we look at the stress mortgage default rate for loans being originated today, it's around a third of the level it was back in 2006 and 2007, which means if we had the same type of stress that we had then, which I don't foresee, but if we had that, we'd only have a third 
as many foreclosures. That's a lot of foreclosures, but it's nowhere near the level we had before. So, Ed, I know you're not going to want to admit this, but 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 I'm going to posit it anyway. And that is, does that mean that we did things in the wake of the crash last time, including government interventions and policies that have protected us better than we were protected then? Yes, to some extent, although the, the bigger issue, I think, or the bigger benefit has been we've been tracking it. And so we've published every month since 2012 what the mortgage default rate is for the last month's originations. And we track that month by month. And we've put that out there. And Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, all the market participants now know precisely where- So you're saying that- that, that Measuring it's been very important. Is what's our favorite line at AI from Dan Daniela from the State of the Institute speech? Information is currency. Yes. So you're saying the information itself alerted people to these potential trends so they changed behavior made more prudent loans, asked for greater uh, equity contributions, maybe greater higher credit scores, all that. And so I guess what you're saying is with that information and maybe a few other policies, but let's see. There were some policies. There were some policies. policies. Um, uh, Lenders have not uh, been sucked into making bad loans to people that weren't going to be able to pay them back should bad times come. With basically one exception, and that's the Federal Housing Administration. The Federal Housing Administration continues to make loans that are about as risky as the ones that were being made by FHA, insured by FHA back in 06 and 07. Um, the default rate, stress mortgage default rate on loans FHA does today is about 30, and it was about 30 back then. The good news is that a very small percentage, relatively speaking, of loans are FHA. Back in the 06 and 07, as I said, the average stress mortgage default rate was in the mid-30s. So FHA was actually a little below average, but today FHA is really um, the extreme in mortgage risk, the outlier. And now all of this, uh, just one last on this, is that if we go into a recession and the labor market uh, deteriorates, it's very hot right now. People are, their wages are are being bid up and there's more job openings than there are uh, people looking for jobs. Will that lead to a potential greater distress in the, in among homeowners? It will lead to some distress, but not an excessive amount because I I think there are five reasons why that won't happen. One is the default rate is much lower. And we actually know from the pandemic that our mortgage default rate index is entirely predictive. We actually were able to test it with the pandemic. So the pandemic led to a huge increase in defaults. And we then were able to show that our mortgage default rate index created from 06 and 07 experience was able to correlate to the pandemic experience with a 99 plus correlation. Wow. And it's good. They're very good. And so we know the same characteristics led will lead to the defaults. And we know what those characteristics are. They don't change. And so that's number one. Uh, number two is demand for home ownership has been uh, enhanced by the work from home and the arbitrage opportunities. What do I mean by arbitrage opportunities? The prices of homes on the West Coast are much higher than they are virtually anywhere else in the United States. And so you can move from San Jose to anywhere in the United States, and it looks like you're buying a house at a much lower price. You're getting a house for a much lower price. If you move to Austin, even today, it still looks like you're buying a house in Austin or fire sale. Now, that's not great for the people in Austin who incomes might only be going up three, four, five percent a year. But there's a, a pool of people from California who are moving to Austin or moving to 
uh, Phoenix. Oh, so you, so the high density areas where all the wealthy people and are the activity is to the extent that those people are moving and they are. They're moving to areas where they can get homes, bigger homes for less price. Exactly. And that's that's a good thing. That's a good thing. So it's actually equilibrating. And why did we end up with that situation? Through bad land use policies, particularly in California. We actually just came across a statistic this morning from some research we're doing. We haven't published it yet, obviously, which shows that the number of houses built the last couple of years per year in Santa Clara County, which is San Jose, is less, just an absolute number than it was during the Great Depression. Huh. When the population in Santa Clara County was one thirteenth of what it is today. So while we're build- talking about building of new homes and household formation, as it's called, we can turn to Phoebe for a minute. She's sort of the part of the, are you a millennial or a Gen X? Millennial. <laughs> you're a millennial. Right on the cusp. Okay, so you're- I going to bring in millennials. So. I want to talk about millennials for a second. And ask, have you, are you buying it or have you bought a home? Still rent. You still rent. Okay, that's okay. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, so, but, 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 you know, and w- yeah, it, is it, will it be a good time for millennials who still rent to buy pretty soon? What do you think about that? So first of all, rents are rising also that was not happening in the odd years. Rents were going up very gently while house prices before the bust were going up very rapidly. So rents were going up slowly. House prices were going up rapidly. That creates a, a, a tension between two higher house prices and you can rent at prices that haven't changed much. Well, today, house prices are going up. Now they're slowing, but rents are still going up pretty rapidly. And so your alternative of, do I lock in something today, even if it's at a 6% interest rate at a higher priced house, or do I risk having rents go up another 10% or 12% a year? So that'll increase demand. That that keeps demand from crashing. And and relative to a Phoebe situation, there are, (laughs) Sam Cater from Freddie Mac reports this, there are three and a half million renters aged 25 to 44, so that includes both groups you mentioned, that are earning more than $75,000. Now, remember, renters generally don't make all, they're, they're below average on average. Right. $75,000 is above average. So there's a lot of renters there's who a could lot buy. Of who I could knew buy. this was about you, Phoebe. <laughs> I knew we were going to get to this being. Actually, just talking about All this. of America yeah. is about millennials. What are we yeah. doing with the millennials? I know. And, and yeah. the it's the largest group, and they're moving through okay. the core home buying years. And what, what I tell people, and we have somebody at the housing center that just bought a home a couple of weeks ago. The key question is, can you, do you have staying power? Can you afford to stay there? Um, you know, in terms of the situation you're in with a house you're buying, you're not overreaching. If you are not overreaching, then you should look at the house. If it meets your needs, you can't tell what the market's going to do next year or last year. I mean, you know what it was last year, yeah. but you can't predict the future. All you can say is, does this work for me today? We, we actually at lunch yesterday with, with you mentioned Ben for the last interview. And there was somebody else at the table talking. Another young. He's almost a millennial. He may yeah. be a millennial too. Uh, there was another a young, young scholar. At AI. We have young uh, scholars. At staffer. And um, he and Mike had been talking, Mike Strain, about whether this is a good time to buy. And do you wait? He'd sold his house, this other person. Yeah. And he's sitting without a house. He's renting. And the question is, how long does he stay renting since he's already sold his house? And the answer we came up with was in Washington, D.C., where house prices are actually, for the last six, seven, eight months, haven't been going up as fast as the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they will slow down some, but they're still going up. And so if you wait too long, you're losing some of the house price appreciation that you can get. On the other hand, you may or may not have higher interest rates 
six months from now. Yeah. Uh, they might be lower. But, may or may not. But who well, knows? And their interest rates are going to be higher in six months. I, I, You're not predicting. I'm not You've predicting. You've been this long enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, the one thing I will say is the Fed will tend to have round heels uh, and get pushed back. And so uh, I don't have confidence that the Fed will stay the course once rates get to, they're already at six and a quarter. If they get much higher, I'm just not sure how much stamina the Fed has. Okay, so we got that. That's good. But before we get into more details about public policy and what's going on, just we went we went a little fast there. Tell tell our listeners what the housing center is. The housing uh, center is a, a group of, of scholars. It's, it's Tobias Peters, the assistant director. I'm the director. Steve Olner is a senior advisor. And, and founder. And co-founder. Co-founder. Yeah. And uh, we have other staffers, uh, most of whom are uh, trained. Uh, they're not. It's hard to find people trained in housing. We have one or two, but most of them are coming out of uh, master's programs. And they have technical expertise because we are fundamentally a data processing center, which and so our the, the motto I came up with was data. We start with data and we're very particular about the data, as you know, mm-hmm. and we make sure we have very complete, accurate data. I don't like models. The Fed gets off track because they rely on a lot of models and it's sausage in and sausage out. What, what you mean there is you like data that reflects actual activity and then you see what that means and you track that very closely. You don't plug a bunch of numbers in to predict the future. That, right. Yeah, I got and, it. And you let the, then you let the data speak for itself. Right. And that turns the data into information. And then that information leads to new knowledge. And that new knowledge leads to policy. Mm-hmm. And that's the process we go through. So we start always with the data. We spend a lot of time looking at various data sources. We started this in uh, 2012 when Steve and I first uh, started collaborating. And we've expanded it ever since. And we just keep adding to our data sets, integrating them. So we're creating a bigger and bigger. And who uh, consumes your reports? Who, who relies on your, your data to, to make judgments about investments or public policy? So we have a very wide range of uh, parties that are interested in our data that range from what I call inside the beltway, which includes both uh, the Hill, Congress, uh, regulators, uh, the executive branch, uh, the various, you know, Fannie, Freddie follow our data. When we first came out with our uh, mortgage risk index in 2013, we had a meeting in 2014 with some, uh, at the request of some Fannie economists, and they basically said, we need to know how your mortgage risk index works because our CEO said he wants us to replicate it. So he's not surprised. And this was within six months of our coming out of it. So we know that people are are watching it. We also have a wide range of people all across the country, you know, obviously New York and, but everywhere across the country in between that range from investment bankers, equity investors in the housing market, uh, academics, uh, you just name it, uh, appraisers. We have a large contingency of, of, people in the valuation business that follow our work. And so we, we pride ourselves in basically not catering just to inside the beltway. It's really, we're trying to get these public policy um, issues out in front of people more broadly. And one of the ways in which you, from a public policy standpoint, you are, you guys have always been most interested in having your data be used was to, was to persuade lenders to make more prudent loans and so that they didn't get borrowers into trouble by you know, overly pushing loans and risk that's greater than the borrower can can take. 
So you've done, and you clearly have done that, and you've had a, a big role in that, and that you should be really congratulated, you and Thank Steve you. and Tobias. But I want to turn to two other issues. One, I want to, third, so the third thing I want to talk about is race and appraisals, and we'll get to that in a minute. But before I do that, let's talk about affordability. Mm-hmm. Is it possible to build homes to be owned by what we call working people, people who make income less than $75,000 a year or less than $100,000 a year? And if it is possible to do that, where? Because it seems like it's not. So let me rephrase that to, is it possible to have a supply of homes? Doesn't necessarily need to be new. Yes. Uh, A supply of homes that meet the standard you just set. So one of the things that, again, we do at the housing centers, we go back in history. I go back and look at the late 1800s through the present. Believe it or not, I pretty much end at around 1970 because I haven't found much useful in terms of housing finance and real estate finance research since 1970. It was all figured out before that, uh, in my opinion. Ed, I don't want to interrupt you, but when you said you go back to period, you know, in the 1800s, I thought you were going to say, and I was there. Yeah, (laughs) not quite. So there's a, a book on urban land economics written by Richard Radcliffe in 1949. It was really the best book on that topic. And he came up with the concept called filtering. Now, filtering took on, it became a dirty word back in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And it's coming back again, and we're helping to bring it back, but it's coming back. And what he said by filtering is, and this gets right to your question, it's impossible to build new, this is 1949, mm-hmm. new housing for low-income people with the market doing that. It's new construction is just more expensive. And therefore, that's hard to do. He also then said, you can't address housing needs by only building at the high end. Why? Because there aren't enough wealthy people to create that demand. And the example we use is is a simple thought experiment. If the only cars that you had built new were Ferraris and they cost $100,000, then very few people would get new cars, number one. And number two, uh, used car prices would soar. Not because they were any better, it's just because there weren't anything that you could buy new. Mm-hmm. And that's, in effect, what's happened with the housing market. So we look again at San Jose, the median price of a new home in San Jose, where the few they're building is $2.5 million. That's, that's it's insane. Yeah. And, and so we are looking right now at this question of how to promote filtering. And just to find filtering, I think it means that the, the, the making available to lower income bar, borrowers Older homes yeah. that so, are trading yes. at, so, those, at so reasonable prices. The way the car market works, forget the last two years where things have uh, had the uh, impact of the pandemic. But up until 2000, beginning of 2020, you go back 50 years. Oh, the car market the is car great. market, you, the, the median price of a new car, new car was half the median income. And that had stayed constant at give or take 50% for 50 years. What does that mean? That means anybody that wants a serviceable, car, new or used, you know, but used car can get one. That's the way it worked. There's 230 million cars in the United States. There's 220 million drivers. That's a lot of cars. Yeah. yeah. And, and they're all pretty much serviceable, which wasn't the, the market's case. working the for market a variety works. of consumers. And I think to your question, the market, how do we get the market to work in housing? In housing. Mm-hmm. And why isn't it working? It isn't working because of zoning and land use restrictions. And we basically make land very expensive and we make building very expensive through regulation. And so we're focused on how to get what we call light touch density, a little bit more density 
and to reduce some of the uh, regulation. And so we've actually, we take all this data that we have, this massive amount of data, and we, again, we, as you said, we have more data than anybody else. And we're actually mining that data. And we've now looked at Houston, Texas, Harris County, which is known for having relatively affordable housing for a rapidly growing city. And we can actually uh, track the trade-off between the gross living area of a house, the square footage of a house, versus the square footage of the lot. And the larger house is going to be on a larger lot. The smaller house is going to be on a smaller lot. That's the way builders build. And it doesn't make any difference whether you're in Harris County, uh, Texas, or you're in Santa Clara, the few houses that get built in Santa Clara, California. But the price differential is also very different. The, the house that's 3,500 square feet on 10,000 square foot uh, uh, wow. lot it sells for a lot more than the house that's 2,000 square feet on the 4,000 square foot lot. And we can actually see that relationship. It is a very defined relationship. And we're, we actually looked at the two extremes. Which are the two extremes? Houston, Texas, and San Jose, California. Yeah, but aren't you going to say that, that in Houston, Texas, and in Harris County, they allow people to build smaller houses on smaller lots? The point is they could actually still go additional light touch density in Houston, Texas. And we can show that when they allow a little bit more density, they get more houses. So what this goes back to filtering. So think of it in the car example. If all the cars are selling for, let's say median income, 70,000, pick a number, and the cars are selling for 35, if you were able to bring the car down to 30, the new car down to 30, then more people could buy a new car, which would free up more used cars. I got it. And the used cars would end up adjusting their price. So what we're looking, what we think we can actually compute I have a meeting with uh, Austin, uh, the mayor, and uh, 49 other people from Austin next week here in D.C. Mm-hmm. And what we think we can show is the trade-off between the density lot size. You increase the density by this much, a little bit. You will get smaller houses. Those smaller houses will cost less. And that will trigger more filtering because the, the filtering process, there are seven or eight moves that take place when somebody moves into that new house, it makes a difference whether they're moving into a $450,000 house or a $350,000 house. If they move into a 350, that triggers more moves downstream at lower rents and lower prices. If they're moving into the 450, take it all the way to the extreme in Santa Clara, they're moving into a $2.5 million house. That doesn't trigger much of anything. Yeah. I'm reminded, before I give, turn to you, Vivian, yeah. I'm going to, but I do want to just tell you guys an interesting little fact that I discovered yesterday that's kind of related to this. But so we had Secretary DeVos in the building yesterday, and she made a big presentation about her new book, which is kind of a memoir of her experience as Secretary of Education. And there's a section in the book. Um, I think these guys that write these books have to make a decision. Do I have photographs or not? Mm-hmm. And thankfully, Secretary DeVos made a decision to have photographs. And there's a photograph of the house that she grew up in that she was as a young child and they called it little red and it's teeny it's a teeny little house she had three or four siblings and mom and dad the point is is that we have gotten obsessed about size and and it's it's more than we need and we need to allow people to have the houses that fit their resources so they can have a home that they can own and the localities have created this through zoning. Yeah. Uh, if you require uh, a quarter acre lot, 
And this is all by design by the federal government back in 1921. This was by design. This didn't happen by accident. It was designed to keep blacks and ethnic Europeans out of these neighborhoods that were going to get built in the 1920s. That was the design. And it was very clear that that was the case. And just just on on that, the this is very bipartisan. I mean, it was this is one of Jason Furman's and the yes. Democrats around President Obama were all, sort of bought in a whole hog that your your focus on zoning and land use regulations is one of the most important things you can do for lower income Americans. And, and California were, has and, enacted, and it's your research that is that is driving that discussion. And California's enacted a light touch density bill that took effect January 1st of this year called yeah, Light that Touch was Density. Be my, I was going to ask about SB9 and SB10 in California. Um, it's, you know, how has it, have you seen that have an impact so far? And kind of what hope is there for for California where a lot of these problems are at their peak? So the bills took effect January 1st of this year. So we're not really yeah. seeing much impact yet, but we're tracking it. We're actually collaborating with the Turner Center at uh, Berkeley who are also tracking it and we've had calls with them and we're sort of following their research. We don't want to replow some of the same work they're doing and we can piggyback off of their work and they can piggyback off of some of our work. But what we're going to, we're going to have a series of conferences in California in late September. The argument we're going to make is you need SB9 and SB10. What SB9 allows you to do is put two units on a lot. It could be Two single family units, it could be a duplex, whatever. You can put two units on a lot. You can also split a lot and then put two units on that. And that roughly applies to about 80% of the entire single family residentially zoned lots in California. That's a big part of California. Um, there are things the cities can do to block it, and that's one of the things we're we're tracking. SB 10 is a little different focus. It SB9 is by right, so you have the right to do that as the, lo- as the property owner. Mm-hmm. SB10 is, gives the locality, the city or county, the authority to rezone uh, areas that meet certain criteria. In particular, they're close to some commercial amenities or they're close to uh, transit. Well, that's very similar to a concept uh, we also developed last uh, fall called Walkable oriented development, where we've identified walkable oriented development, development WOD mm-hmm. or WOD, walkable oriented <laughs> development. And we basically have defined all the areas around the country that we can find 23,000 of them that you can walk to a set uh, definition of amenities, uh, supermarkets and pharmacies and other restaurants and other things with a 10 minute walk. And we found, you know, all of the areas in the, in the country that you do. We have a map up on that. Mm-hmm. And we're basically going to, uh, at, at these conferences, say it's in your economic interest. There's lots of other reasons you want to do this. Environmental, health, walking, all these things. But it's in your economic interest to have some higher density, to do light touch density in areas that aren't near walkable areas. It might be just going from what SB9 does, you know, one unit to two or a duplex or whatever. But in a walkable area development area, it might be going to four, five, six uh, units um, uh, on a parcel. It might go to 15 or 20 units per acre. And one of the things I like to do is go hit the hit the pavement somewhere and sort of see what's going on in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And I tend to do that in places that I visit somewhat frequently, of which northern New Jersey, where I grew up, is one, and Charlotte, North Carolina, where my son and his family live, is another. And so 
one of our whole concepts of walkable development was based on a small neighborhood that my son lives in, in uh, uh, Charlotte. But I, I was speaking here at the National Association of Home Builders down the street. And there was a gentleman who was a developer from Charlotte. And uh, we were talking, I was talking about this zoning in this particular uh, neighborhood that my son lives in. He says, you're absolutely right. That R22 zoning, what's R22 zoning? You have 22 units an acre. That is not super dense. You know, if you had uh, 5,000 square foot uh, lots, that's eight units per acre. And that's still not all that dense. So 22, and, and when you have 22 units an acre, it doesn't mean that everybody goes to 22 automatically. In the neighborhood that's at 22, the average is 11, and it's been that way for 100. You know, it's mm-hmm. been it's been evolving over 100 years, and it's now at 11. If you start out at five, you end up at four and a half, mm-hmm. and that's part of the problem. Is when you limit it to five, you really stop everything else. Yeah. So what he said, oh, you need to see uh, this property um, on uh, Amherst in this little neighborhood, and so I went and drove by it. And from the street, it looked like the other houses on the street, a one uh, story uh, with a triangular roof facing the street. But when you went a little bit to the side, it was a fourplex. It was a four unit condominium townhouse, mm. uh, each with their own little garage. And down uh, the, the driveway was down the side. So you ended up with it was a 11,000 square foot lot with four homes on it. But from the street, it looked just like the other homes that were next to it. But instead of homes selling for $1.6 million, right? you were getting homes for 400000 And instead of getting homes for 2,800 square feet, you were getting homes for 1,300 square feet. Well, that's, which fits the market, Which too. fits the market. Yeah. That's exactly. And it fits the millennial market. Yeah. Yeah. So you're pushing for higher density and great less regulations. So light touch density. Light touch density. I, I, I think it's... Uh, Outstanding work. Now, let's talk about race. You and Tobias have have written some papers that have pushed back against a kind of politically correct accepted wisdom that continuing persistent current racism in appraisals is causing discrimination against blacks in the sale of the sale of their homes. I think that's right. The valuation of their homes. Their valuation of their homes. And and the refinance. And and you and you've said, well, they're there's something going on there, but it's not that. So tell us, tell, us, tell us that story a little bit. So again, when we start the research, we start with a roughly blank sheet of paper. And in this case, we were uh, looking at research that was done by the um, Brookings Institute, some scholars there. And basically, the conclusion of their work was that um, due to things going on today by appraisers and others, um, that properties in predominantly black areas were valued 28% lower than properties in white areas once you account for all the differences in either the property or the neighborhood. And they they asserted that with these 23 controls in their regression, they could account for everything that would be of import. Whatever was left, they then asserted, had to be due to discrimination. And $23,000, it ended up being, I think, $58,000 per property. It's a lot of money. And we're going, you know, that, that just doesn't seem to make sense given the way markets work, but let's check it. So we actually, we met with them. We got, you know, they shared their data. They shared their uh, uh, regression formulas and we repl- were able to replicate it. So we said, let's start by just replicating what they did. And we got basically the same results they did. And then we said, okay, now we thought our, our intuition was this is more due to socioeconomic status than it is to ongoing discrimination today. 
And so we said, well, let's, and they already had some socioeconomic status of controls, one of which was the percentage of single mothers with children under 18. And we said, okay, well, we have a couple others we could add, two others in particular. One was the, for the loans themselves in that uh, area, what percentage had one borrower versus two? That's kind of a proxy for whether you're married or not. It's not perfect, but there's really good data from the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act about that. And so, and it goes back many years. And so we had really good data and it's a complete census. We like complete censuses. So we had that. And we also had, what's the median credit score of that area? They, they had census tracts. Of the census tract, if everybody that lives in the census tract, what's the median credit score? Not the people got loans, just everybody who's in that census tract. And we know that's a very important predictor of things. Um, and it's very key in our mortgage default rate index. And when we added the credit score piece, the 23% went down to a the exact number, I'm going to say 7%. It eliminated a huge percentage. And then when we added the second piece, it basically went down to roughly zero plus or minus 2%. You know, so statistically not different than zero. That's not to say it is zero. Uh, and it's not to say there might be something else going on, but we, we don't think it's 28%, which is what got all the headlines from the president of the United States on down. We then did a, what we call a robustness check, which was very straightforward. Let's just look at neighborhoods, census tracts, where there are no blacks. And let's see if there's a difference in price once you control for all these things. And the answer was yes, there was still a difference. Well, that shouldn't have happened because they said they had corrected for everything but race. Mm-hmm. And so when we had other uh, robustness checks, but those, you know, that, that's the gist of it. Uh, we then did lots of research on other studies that were being done. Freddie Mac did one that we pushed back on quite a bit, and we're continuing to do research on that. That led to, Freddie, to Fannie Mae actually doing a re- research that actually supported the conclusions we came up with after Freddie Mac came out with theirs. We also used some other Fannie Mae research to also push back on what uh, Freddie Mac had done. We also did a critique of the PAVE uh, report, which the president had set up this uh, uh, group that was headed by the secretary of HUD and the secretary of domestic uh, or the uh, head of domestic policy, Susan Rice and Marsha Fudge. We basically said, wait a minute, this whole uh, proposal that they have here is based on three studies. One of which we just said isn't, uh, doesn't meet the litmus test in terms of reasonability from Brookings. Two, the Freddie Mac study, which we've said is really just incorrect. And three, a study from FHFA that said, this is literally what they said. Oh, we, we took millions of appraisals. We had an AI system that went through looking for suspicious words that might be race-oriented. We found millions of cases, most of which were false positives. We ended up with 14 instances. Here's a, we ended up with some instances. Here's 14 examples. That's literally the amount of information they gave. Now, no researcher would ever state right. it that way and reach a conclusion, but they did. So, but I want to be clear about one thing, because I think in the write-ups that you gave, you didn't, you didn't say that some of those socioeconomic factors that you pointed to that should have been included in the original study might not or could not be the result of past uh, racial bias or a history of, of racism in America. But what the distinction you're making is, is that that, that, that was, could be more the cause than a current, ongoing, persistent 
racism by appraisers and by lenders. Exactly. And, and I think that's a very important point that some people miss. They say, well, some people are saying it's all race and some people are saying it's not race at all. You really were saying, well, race played a role here, but not the way they said it did. And the reason that's important is because what we want to figure out is solutions to the problem. And if you don't identify what the real problem is, you're not going to come up with the right solution. If, if you don't diagnose the problem, you're going to come up with the wrong treatment. Yeah. And, and so we actually have a very well-known progressive voice who at that same National Home Builders meeting a, a month or so ago uh, gave a full-throated endorsement of our work. And, and what he's not only saying we had done it well and appropriately, but he then said, and the reason why this is so important is we're focused on potentially on the wrong solution. If you focus on fixing the appraisal process, it isn't broken the way they think it's broken. If you focus on that and you make some changes and then you go, oh, we're done, then you actually haven't solved the problem. Right. We need to identify the problem. The problem appears to be socioeconomic, not embedded in the evaluation process. All right. Well, Phoebe, what's more? What more do we have to ask Ed? I think just what you've said about COVID trends has been so interesting. And I'm just curious to hear long term, like to take New York City as an example, randomly, because Robert loves to talk about it. But also I have I have family in New York and they want to move to Florida. And I think that a lot of people are in that. No New Yorkers in Florida. But I mean, really, just these places, these hubs like San Francisco and New York, where people have always wanted to live, but it's always been so hard. We're now seeing people that can work at the same places, but, you know, not live in those really expensive cities. So I, what long-term impact do you think? First of all, I, I would change the word wanted to were required to live. Yeah. To some right. extent. So Walter Riston, who was a longtime CEO of Citibank back in the sixties and seventies. Very good banker. Very good banker. Well, you know, one of the most respected bankers. He had a, a saying, he said, if you treat capital poorly, it will flee. And uh, I think he was not only talking about financial capital, but intellectual capital. It will flee. And look what's going on in Hong Kong. Look what's going on in uh, Moscow. And look what's going on in San Francisco. And what happened was both the companies felt they were chained to San Francisco or Silicon Valley, and the employees felt they were chained to the companies. And if you were working for Salesforce in downtown San Francisco and the condominium across the street that rented for $4,000 a month or whatever it rented for, and you felt, okay, I got to live there because then I'm right across the street. As soon as you were, were unshackled from that building, mm -hmm. all of a sudden you could move 50 miles away in the San Jose area, which more, more square footage, more land, lower price, or you can move to Sacramento, or you can move to Las Vegas, Boise, you name it. You had, the world was now open to you. And that was a big change. And I think New York is really, New York City, uh, it's not going to roll up and, and blow away like tumbleweed, <laughs> but they've had a huge hit yes. in employment. And employment yeah. is the core. You know, they, I think they've lost three or 400,000 jobs. They're losing people and they're losing their fiber, their fabric mm -hmm. of the urban fabric of little shops and barbershops and restaurants and all the things. I mean, I was in New York a couple months ago, uh, I think it was the end of April, and Midtown, uh, right around uh, uh, Times Square, was just bustling with tourists and convention people and stuff like that. And the restaurants were jammed. I just don't think that's going on in much of the rest of Manhattan uh, and out in some of the. Yeah, yeah I, I think, uh, you know, there is a 
it's good for the places people move to. It brings economic uh, life there. People get to have the quality of life that they want. I also should, I mean, there, you know, New York City got up above eight and a half million, a little higher. That put a lot of pressure on the price of rent. Right. And so there could be an upside to this and that yeah. the, it'll take Same some thing in California. pressure off the housing market, which will make rents more affordable. I mean, let it happen. Yeah, let it happen. Let I, it happen. I think that's the way markets work. And I would just go back, well, why did this happen? It happened because these communities thought they had a captive audience and they could right. do anything they wanted with land use right. and zoning. That's what really got them into this trouble. Well, it's great having you, Ed. It's great having you on Banter. Phoebe, it's yeah, great. Thank you. Um, Roger, thank you. Uh, Ed is one of the great mainstays of AEI, and his team is doing great work and followed very, very closely who care a lot about what they produce because what they produce informs them of things that help them make better decisions in their own investments. And so that's just what could you ask for anything better than that at AEI? So, Ed, thank you. And thank thanks you for the to, support. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.